0: Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today, I am joined by, the, by some people would actually say would we'll be the king of sleep, maybe, the current king of sleep. Now, I don't know whether I have to call you Professor Russell Foster, Sir Russell Foster, Lordship Russell Foster... And um, I'm not really sure what's the correct title, because if you go to Wikipedia right now, people will find you, that Russell has more letters and more things after his name and even some sort of <laughs> knighthood from the Queen. And this is not a joke. <laughs> so what, what's the correct title I should call you?
1: Um, actually, call me Russell. Um, Russell. <laughs> yeah, I think that's enough.
0: <laughs> so, Russell, you, you do have a CBE, which is uh, this is like a, something of like the British Empire. What, what exactly is that again? The CBE. It, it's,
1: it, it stands Commander. for Commander of the British Empire. And there are three orders. There's member. um, uh, What's it? It's it's, uh, there's a that's an MBE, and then there's an OBE, Order of the British Empire, and then there's a CBE, which is Commander of the British Empire, Um, and they they're given for uh, a variety of different things. Um, And and mine, I think, was given because of. It was for services to science. Uh, And so I sort of set up the public engagement committee at the Royal Society. I was very involved in one of the research councils, um, organizing funding. And so I think it was just sort of contributing to the science infrastructure. Uh, And I was very, I'm completely surprised to get it. I mean, my wife and I came home uh, after after a party and we saw this rather formal looking envelope uh, uh, on the doorstep. And I thought, oh no, it's jury service. Oh, I do not have time for jury. Se- oh no, because it had a big crest and things on it. And so, you know, we opened it up and then uh, saw this this extraordinary order. And of course, I didn't know what it was, so rushed to the computer to look up what you know a, a CBE um, uh, was. And it was wonderful. Um, and uh, it was given to me by um, uh, the, uh, the Prince 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 uh, William. Um, and uh, so. It was fun, it was at Windsor Castle, and he, um, you know, we, chat, we were chatting away, and he said, sir, you know, what do I do about jet lag? And I said, ah, oh, well, sir, you know, the great news is that um, uh, we know what causes jet lag, um, and in fact, we can cure it in mice. Problem is, we can't yet do it in humans. And he roared with laughter, and all these people sort of later on said, what are you two talking about? What, what are you, doing? what made him laugh so much? So it was, it's been a, a wonderful experience. So, so
0: technically, are you entitled to be called Sir, Your Lordship? Oh gosh, no, no. That's the next. Oh, no, no.
1: That's, the that's the next, next level up. So, um, ah. no, 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 no. Uh, so, so that would be a knighthood, um, and a knighthood. Um, uh, so, so I do not have a knighthood. <laughs> so you're,
0: you're you're in training for the knighthood. We'll say you're like a knighthood practice at the <laughs> moment. <laughs> so, as people would have known, there, Russell, you are English originally. So, where whereabouts did you grow up, Russell? In uh, in the uh, United Kingdom well, or England?
1: Uh, uh, sort of on the Hampshire-Surrey border. So, you know, about 30 miles from London. Uh, my, the first place was Camberley in Surrey. Uh, and then we moved to Aldershot because my mother um, was a very senior uh, nurse and she was asked to take over a um, sort of a, an institution for socially deprived kids, pre-school kids. And so it was this great, great big Victorian house and we used to live on the, on the top floor. And uh, she did a fantastic job uh, for 15 years or so, uh, looking after and ensuring the care of uh, a group of socially disadvantaged kids. And so it was very um, interesting growing up in that environment. And, and, you know, you just sort of thank your lucky stars about how, how lucky you are uh, that I, I didn't personally have to experience some of the horrors that these poor kids had experienced. So it was, it was, a, it was a very... Um, very sobering, but also I think a very uh, educational uh, period, and that was in Aldershot. Uh, and then um, we sort of moved around to to Farnham again, sort of back over into the Surrey border. And then, of course, I went to Bristol uh, as, for my undergraduate um, degree, and never really went back to the home the home area.
0: Yeah, maybe if you stayed in Aldershot, you might have joined the Paratroopers. That's the home of the <laughs> Paratroopers, isn't it? Around there, Absolutely. Or in the Royal Engineers, I
1: think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of the kids in, in this, um, uh, in this uh, uh, home were uh, actually uh, army kids. Mm.
0: So, Russell, you went to, you say you went to the University of Bristol. And yeah. so once you were there, you graduated with a Bachelor of Science. Um, yes. But what I find interesting about this is you did it in zoology.
1: Oh, yeah. What attracted yeah, and, you and to in fact- zoology? Oh, I, I, I've, from the earliest, my earliest memory is is watching, um, in fact in Camberley, uh, so I was way before five, just lying on the ground, watching a lizard on a rock, and, and I was just fascinated with everything, and I used to collect fossils, and you know, just in sort of the biological world. I was absolutely obsessed by it and drew it and and um, you know when I was a bit older photographed it and it just was it's one of those overwhelming interests and 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 just loved it um, and and really didn't think of anything other than doing zoology or or biology at at university and and sort of committing myself to that subject in some way or another I I didn't know quite how but it was the sort of direction I wanted to go in um so and I and I loved it I, I I went to University of Bristol and it was like throwing back the curtains and letting the light in for the first time I met lots of people who had a passion for biology and you know were keen to stay up half the night talking and arguing and it was just liberating it was one of those fantastically formative times and I you know had loved music before going to university but then had the chance to go to the Bristol Hippodrome and listened to some extraordinary con- concerts um, and got into opera and Wagner and, you know, um, as I say, just a brilliant, brilliant time.
0: And so what, what do you think you, you would have uh, done if you didn't go to university and study science? What, what else maybe would been in the mix? Were you thinking mm-hmm. about maybe another career or something, something different or was this kind of you were just going to go and do science and particularly zoology?
1: I, I think I, I yeah I think that was dominated. I mean, I've always been very interested in history, and, and where I'm sitting now in, in in my study at home, I mean, half the books half the books are are history books, and I and I love history. But I don't think I would have been a good historian. Um, uh, my sort of my written skills probably would not have been up to it. Um, I just I just I just love it. I suspect I probably would have gone into i don't know maybe the police or 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 something like that i mean uh yeah i think it, I, I i didn't really give it much of a, a second thought and and um somebody was asking me actually the other other day what what's the secret to your success and i hadn't really thought about it before and then my truthful answer was a, a deep and profound insensitivity um in that i i just have have focused upon one thing and really not considered much else.
0: Mm, that's, that's interesting. So the, the, I just want to come back there to a point, Russell, because this is, some people I've been talking to recently, we've come across the history thing, and mm. mainly with people doing PhDs at the moment, and mainly people who are out of Ireland and England. So I'm wondering, is the history thing something that's related as a precursor or a secondary interest? Because I'm the same. I have a, I'm a big fan of history. And I actually think if I didn't um, study science as a, as a PhD, I probably would have liked to do history and still would like to do history, actually, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. So I don't know. Is this a kind of a cultural thing coming from Western Europe, particularly like Ireland, England, we've got in and Ireland, and UK, we've got so much similarity in terms of culture. Is it just part of our culture or is, it, is there some relationship with history and being a scientist, do you think?
1: Well, I think there may be that sort of science history connection, because after all, as scientists, we want to understand the world in which we live. Um, And uh, and of course, an understanding of history tells us where we've come from and, and why we... Um, are surrounded by the structures uh, the societal structures that we have at the moment Um, and I think that's absolutely fascinating so when you look at a building or you look at an institution or a family you can see what's shaped them and formed them and in a sense how that guides them as they go forward largely unconsciously Um, and I really I think that's really incredibly exciting my, my kids of course haven't haven't got the same or didn't have the same sort of interest in history and they would sort of wind me up and say now dad what was that was that the first world (laughs) war or the second world war um but now it's fascinating they're in their early 30s the eldest is, is is 30 and they're now beginning to wonder about history and and in fact you know a christmas present to our eldest was a history book so so that she actually got some sense of 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 the environment in which she was living so i do think there is that sort of connection between science and history
0: yeah, I'm currently reading a book. It's on my bedside table, along a few side a few other ones. One there that you um you made a com- uh, you made a comment there about Wagner, um who obviously was a friend of Nietzsche at one stage. So got Nietzsche on the side on the side uh the side table. Um, Young. I'm going down a psychology uh, philosophy rabbit hole at the moment. Stoic philosophy and some psychology around Nietzsche, Young, and Freud. But um, also I have this book about the Royal Society and the history of the Royal Society, which was, I think, edited by um, Bill Bryson. And it's yeah, a very yeah, interesting, it's, interesting it's, kind it's of history of the kind of, you know, the evolution of, of science and into the Royal Society, which is something you're part of, Russell. And I see pictures of the yes. Royal Society on, on the Internet. And we see these things and it looks like this grand society and these beautiful buildings. What's it actually like being part of the Royal Society and publishing within the Royal Society?
1: Well, um, as you know, other than a, a sort of a Nobel Prize, the the the, the fellowship of the Royal Society is sort of the the, the greatest honour that a British scientist can get. And I didn't, in my wildest dreams, um, think that I would ever be a fellow. And in fact, I heard unofficially that I was I'd been elected while I was in Western Australia and it was one of those utterly joyous moments um and uh uh then you sort of uh, and the induction is extraordinary because it's it's quite formal um and you know your you're, you're, you're innermost family come along and you have to give a talk uh and then on the second day you have to sign your name in this this book where are the signatures of all the fellows of the Royal Society so there is Darwin and Newton and these extraordinary individuals and it and it is an utterly humbling um, experience Um, and what I think I found really exciting is that it's not a fossilized organization at all. It's actually behind the scenes doing a huge amount of good uh, in terms of underpinning the science infrastructure of not only the UK but of course the Commonwealth as well. And um, I've been very privileged I sort of was able to set up the Public Engagement Committee uh, was the first chair and you know drafted some of the the statutes of, of, of that um, and, it, it, and that was Again, hugely exciting, because I think what, what science organizations had done is talk to the general public. And and what we wanted to do was expand that whole concept in that, that you know, it's like a triangle of interaction. Sure, one conveys information to the non-scientific community to allow more informed decisions about life. But what we have not done is actually consult. we have never actually asked, what are you interested in? What are the misconceptions? What do you want to know? And the third point of the triangle is that we'd never actually worked with non-scientists to actually achieve ways of delivering knowledge in the science sector more efficiently. And so we sort of embedded that 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 structure within the within the organization. And so, for example, there's a lot of policy work that goes on uh, and and you'll get very distinguished individuals looking at issues such as climate change or GM or fracking or whatever. Um, but before we have those those policy documents, we actually now consult with the broader public to find out what those interests are, what the misconceptions are, and what they people actually want to know. So so it's genuine engagement and I've I've enjoyed that immensely.
0: Mm. That's um, that's interesting because I would have I would have actually thought it was the opposite. Like you said, I would have thought it would have been this kind of nearly akin to the Freemasons, maybe. I don't know. Not that I know <laughs> what the Freemasons are like, but I would have thought it would have been this all kind of Hierarchical, stick in the mud kind of you know pomp yeah. and ceremony type organization. So it's great to hear that it's actually it's actually not that it's really interesting. And, and you know that
1: FRS you know is, is stands for either Fellow of the Royal Society or former research scientist. <laughs> 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 and, um, and, and what's 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 emerged is that they've they've. They've elected a lot of younger people. I mean, I was 40, 48 uh, when I was elected. Um, so really at the sort of peak of my, my powers, as it were, as a research scientist. Um, and so had lots of energy to throw into the organization. And I've sort of gone on to sit on, on council and various other uh, committees. Uh, and they uh, genuinely un- underpin um, the science and science communication across, across the UK and, and to some extent the Commonwealth as well.
0: Yeah, that's 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 great to hear. It's great. To, I I'm a big fan of science communication, obviously, but this podcast we try to to you know make sleep and performance related related information nice and kind of fun and lighthearted for people to listen to. So um, so yeah, so it's uh, it's great to hear. So Russell, your your work, um. That really kind of got you to CBE and got you into the Royal Society is mainly focused around something called the SCN or the superchasmatic nucleus. Can you tell us a little bit about what that SCN is and what the function of it is and some of the work that you've done around this that you've been noted for around the rods and cones?
1: Yeah, I mean, so what we have is uh, an internal representation of a day, a biological clock ticking away within the brain um, that is essentially anticipating predictable events within the, within, within the 24-hour day. So the arrival of dawn, the arrival of dusk, and, and this internal clock anticipates and then prepares in advance the body for these changed environments. So in anticipation of waking up blood pressure in- increases, um, uh, metabolic rate increases in anticipation of increased activity. So as soon as the change conditions occur, you can get out there and exploit the new environment appropriately. And at the other end of the day, of course, you get a winding down. And, and, and of course, the, the clock is, is a, an essential element in the timing of, of, of the sleep-wake cycle. And I was interested in timing mechanisms really from before my my PhD um, and got into circadian rhythms and timing mechanisms for my my PhD, um, which was to try and understand how birds detect day length. Um, And they then use that information to regulate their reproductive system. And so I was sort of got into timing earlier, but particularly how light is setting internal time. And so if we go back to the suprachiasmatic nuclei, it's great, it's this clock, but it doesn't run exactly at 24 hours. In humans, it's a little bit longer than 24 hours. And so what it requires is a daily resetting, a sort of a nudge every day. A bit like, you know, an old-fashioned grandfather clock, which ticks away, but it can run a little bit faster. So you have to just adjust it a little bit every day. And that adjustment to the master clock, the SCN, is done by light. And what interested me really early on was how the heck is light used to regulate the clock? And the assumption had been, well, it's, it's the rods and cones, the visual cells of the eye. And um, that didn't make sense to me because, in fact, as an undergraduate, I, I had I had been taught by a brilliant individual called John Lithgow and he and he taught the sort of the concept that sensory systems are fine-tuned to the demands of the task that they have to undertake and of course what the visual system does is grab light and, and, and then forget it seen it in a fraction of a second to build an image of the world but what the clock needs to set it to the external world is to measure overall amounts of light at dawn and dusk and I couldn't quite see how the visual system could also function as a brightness detector, integrating light over very long periods of time. And so um, we started working on mice with hereditary retinal disorders, mice in which the visual cells had broken down, not completely, but had largely broken down. And these were animal models used to understand human eye disease. And what turned out to be truly extraordinary was that despite being visually blind, these animals could regulate their clock, their circadian rhythms, perfectly normal to the light-dark cycle. And that began to sort of really um, trigger the idea that perhaps there's more than the rods and cones in the eye and we got a lot of data uh, suggesting that visual blindness had no effect upon circadian light detection at all. And I remember going to to, to one vision meeting in the States and saying, so these data are consistent with, with 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 the proposition that there's another light sensor within the eye. And somebody at the back of the room stood up, looked at me and I thought they were asking a question. So I sort of paused and they just looked at me and said, bullshit. And then walked out. <laughs> I mean, the idea, you know, and, and of course I was kind of a young scientist. And so 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 the part of the objection was, how dare you? We've been studying the eye for 150 years. Are you seriously telling us that we've missed an entire light sensing system? You know, just just grow up. And anyway, um, those sorts of criticisms stung, and, and in the end, we were able to um, show that indeed there is another light sensor within the eye. And it's based upon the cells that form the optic nerve so there are ganglion cells which gather light information from from the from the retina and then project on into the brain and what's turned out to be extraordinary is about one out of every hundred of those ganglion cells is directly light sensitive and it's that uh, those sorts of photoreceptors that are detecting the dawn dust cycle to regulate internal time and um, yeah it was a huge uh, a, a huge revolution and and it you know we've realized that the eye is not just the organ of space but by its regulation of the clock it 's also the organ of time and um, uh, and of course, that's had big implications in the clinical world uh, I, I, and has really sort of i suppose been the basis of a lot of the research I have done and i 'm still doing at the present time
0: yeah. So interesting. So Russell, when that happened, and this this uh, scientist stood up at the back of the room and basically cried bullshit, did you get a bit nervous and think, "There goes the end of my scientific career"? Like, how did you how did you go how did you go through that process? Because this happens to a lot of young scientists. um, People kind of you know shoot them down or shout them down, even in some conferences. How how did you deal with that? How did you kind of you know have this? (laughs) this great career because you uh, might want to send him a link to your Wikipedia page now and say bullshit check this out (laughs) like (laughs) so how did did you go through that and get over it really
1: I think it's all about the data you just have to you know, have really good data yeah. um, and, and, and also respond to the criticism. So, you know, the, the argument was, hang on, you know, your models, your mouse models just aren't that good because there are a few functional rods and cones left in the retina and that's all you need to, to regulate internal time. So then we had to genetically engineer a mouse where there were no rods and cones at all um, and the data held up. So, so it, was, it was, you know, over a 15, almost 20 years of, of research um, to 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 finally nail this, and and it was quite amusing because uh, the people, what the meeting that I um, where, where the person stood up and, and said bullshit. A few years later, they gave me one of their their honours of the Kogan Award um, when I was really uh, yeah yeah, um, and w- this wonderful person um, Joe Bashars, who I think had been instrumental in recommending me for this award, said said Russell, you spent the last ten years as it was then trying to convince this lot um, that uh, uh, there's another receptor within the eye and you know that you've done it. But just be aware that you'll spend the next 10 years being told, well, we knew that all along anyway. <laughs> And you know, it was dead right. Um, it's incredible uh, how uh, people forget the the, the you know the the, the the struggle. And I think that you're going back addressing your question. Um, it's you just have to you know make sure the data are as solid as possible, um, and consult. And 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 there were moments. I remember I was giving a seminar in Germany, and it was in the early days where we had these 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 results. And a very senior uh, German academic stood up and said, this is not correct. And, uh, uh, and that evening, I, I remember thinking, oh, my God, have I, have I made a mistake? Have, could I have done something wrong? And I remember before I went to sleep um, that night, because, because of my background in zoology, we'd actually already shown that fish have another light sensor within their eye and I remember going, going, going to sleep that night thinking well it's not such a daft idea that mammals have got this other receptor because we've already shown it in fish and that was some stuff that we published in Nature or oh, largely forgotten actually um, but it was first shown in fish and so I thought well on the basis of comparative it's not such a crazy idea but it mm-hmm. took a long time and, and I was still getting emails from very distinguished vision biologists uh until relatively recently saying that this is nonsense um it, really? it, it, oh yeah it's absolutely fascinating because uh you know we tend to think of scientists as being you know open-minded and liberal and, and and that but a lot of them aren't um and they and they bring so much baggage with them because of the way that they uh, could perceive the world I mean my my fortune was that I didn't grow up as a vision biologist I grew up as a as a circadian biologist and so I could I could go to the eye and take a fresh look and and so the idea that there was another receptor within the eye wasn't so crazy to me as it would have been to a vision biologist
0: hmm. Russell, you hit on a very interesting point here which is um, so when I first met you it was probably back around 2015 or 2016 uh, roughly i think when you came to university of western australia when i was sort of maybe three quarters way through my phd um is when we first met when you came there from to to visit uh, to to visit the center for sleep science at university of western australia but i've obviously yeah. been familiar with your work and i've, I've seen your ted talk and had heard you on podcasts and you know things like infinite monkey cage and I've seen you on bbc stuff so I, I knew of your work but what struck me about you when i first met you and um sit back now and take the applause here, Russell, was that you were quite, <laughs> you were quite positive and quite upbeat, um, and you're quite enthusiastic and, and questioning. And you were like a kind of a 16-year-old kid to me when I presented some data, because you were very kind of, you could see the glint in your eye about you were very interested in that. Then you came back here maybe a year or so ago, and we went to the Pilbara region, and we spoke in an oil and gas community. And we had some good discussions sort of offline ourselves about this this thing about circadian bio, circadian biology, shift work and sort of performance. And again, you had that glint in your eye and you still, have, you, you always seem to have that glint and excitement, glint in your eye, that excitement about when we talk about science, whereas other people like me, you know, and all due respect, they've got great careers and, and they're great people, but they're very kind of like, um, I suppose, can be negative negative can be trying to push things down, can be trying to disprove things, where well, you're the opposite. You're always like, "Oh wow, what, what, what's this? How does this work? Oh yeah, you're looking for ways to improve where other people are looking for ways to, I suppose, depress information or suppress information. How do you, over time, keep that enthusiasm? And do you, do you feel that inside that every day you get up, you have this kind of burning desire for science or do you have to work on it? Or <laughs> like, how do you maintain that enthusiasm?
1: It it is intriguing, um, and I, sometimes it can drive my wife completely crazy because I'm enthusiastic <laughs> about many things, um, and and, and uh, you know it is a bit like living, I, I guess, at some some level uh, with with a kid, um, and I think that 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 wonderful. Childhood enthusiasm of, of of looking afresh at the world every day um, is really vital if you if you 're curious um, and you really want to understand things so i'm i 've been very fortunate in that sense and it 's also shaped the way of my career because you know you're you 're sort of offered to do various things like you know, maybe run a charity or a research council or do this sort of stuff. But it's, it's through the science that, that gets me out of bed in the morning. And, and actually now, because I'm approaching my 61st birthday, the great joy for me is working with young, enthusiastic scientists. I have some amazing colleagues So you know, we've been, we've been working on a paper for, for, for quite some time now, and we essentially spent yesterday finishing it off virtually and it was such a buzz, uh, and, and so I feel mm-hmm. deeply honoured to be working with bright young minds who also have that enthusiasm and share it. And, and, it's, and it's that, I guess, love of science, which has remained, thank goodness, and has stopped me wanting to do the other sorts of obvious things you might do towards the, the last gasp of your career. Um, I want to remain a scientist.
0: Yeah, so as you just alluded there, Russell, as you kind of get more senior and as you progress in your career, the tendency then is to probably do less science and start doing more administrative stuff and move into these more um, probably, I don't know, higher level administrative type roles. Do you now still get your hands kind of dirty, so to speak, in the lab with with um, with um, actual experiments or do you just... Work with those PhDs, postdoctoral, or other people within the lab, or do you still like to put on your white coat and poke and prod some things with your glasses on?
1: <laughs> no, they don't let me in the lab now because <laughs> you know, I mean, I have, I mean. I, 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 I it's, it's absolutely hilarious. I, I have a, a wonderful white lab coat, which is what I put on when we have distinguished visitors. <laughs> but, you know, sadly, it's about the only time I put it on. I mean, I, 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 but, but it's interesting, I, I've got this, this microscope, um, a really beautiful Zeiss microscope. It's now god 30 years old 35 34 yeah about 30 years old and i and i said right that is my microscope and and when i retire i'm taking it with me because i'm going to i'm going to sort of get back to microscopy and anatomy and, and and do all those sorts of wonderful things um again um but but i think that the problem the, well, the, the thing about science of course is that you have to keep on plugging away on a on a day-to-day basis and the my life as a, as a science administrator and, and, uh, and working with the PhDs and the postdocs and, and my, my, my sort of early career colleagues, um, is, it just doesn't allow you the time really to spend much solid time in the lab. Um, and also I've got out of date. Um, you know I'm not sure what the best enzyme is for this or what the best you know new technique is and and I think unless you can keep up to date you could be a liability I mean the, th- the thing that I find rewarding and, and actually it's a great surprise is that I can still contribute because of ideas and because of writing and and just framing concepts and hypotheses and i really enjoy that side of it as well and and again working working with young people but 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 practically in the lab i haven't done a serious experiment for quite some years now
0: right so <laughs> that's that's uh, that's quite interesting so russell um we're coming towards the end of our time here because i know you're a very busy man and we are recording this during the uh COVID-19 restrictions for anybody who might be listening to this so Russell did think he was going to have lots of time but actually his days have got more compressed and more meetings I think what's happened Russell is people have gone well Russell Foster is going to be at home he's got no excuse that he's travelling so we're going to nail him down and this is what we're going to do and might I yeah. add, it's taken me about four weeks to nail Russell down as no, well. I'm sorry, because... I don't apologize. <laughs> That's okay. Well, <laughs> because when the coronavirus thing hit, I thought, right, I'm going to get, I'm going to nail Russell down now for this podcast. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. There was a few people I thought, right, they've got no excuse. I'm going to get them. <laughs>
1: I heard a great one the other day though, in which is that um, oh i 'm sorry my my, my my internet has gone down you know um, and uh, i, I haven 't used that one yet, but i have been I have been sorely tempted
0: <laughs> well i've i 've been hanging up a few phone calls. Going, signals gone signal 's gone so there you go. And that's got a friend of, mine
1: would, friend of mine would would always set an alarm on his on his phone to to ring him about thirty minutes into um, any party or, or a social gathering, and uh, so that he could always say, "I'm sorry, I've, I've got to take this. It's an urgent call," and, and then has an excuse to leave. Um, <laughs> but if he's having a good time, he just say, "Oh, I'll call you back." <laughs> it's very naughty. I've never done that. I promise.
0: You. <laughs> it's a clever, a clever idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a note of that woman. <laughs> so- So also as well, um, we should have made a disclaimer at the start because I like to make disclaimers, Russell, on the podcast as well. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because of your uh, very decorated past and impressive resume, which is available online. I wanted to have you on mainly to say to all the people out there that shut down my work or want to shoot down my work or want to say bad things about me. Uh, Professor Russell Foster was my PhD examiner and he is the one that recommended to the University of Western Australia that I proceed to graduation. So if you have any problems with my background, my education or the validity or the quality of my work, Please email Russell at russell. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was a lovely PhD, Ian, and you should be proud of it. It was a it was a joy to do actually. Um, some sometimes these are a bit of a pain, but this one was was fun. And 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 of course we did it virtually. I mean, yes, you know, we were right. ahead of the game. Uh, and. Awesome, uh, yeah yeah and um, the great the great sadness of course is that we couldn't all get together over a glass of or a beer or something afterwards which is the usual way to celebrate these these things but no you did brilliantly no it
0: was it was it was great and it's uh, it's been the catalyst onto much more research now so since we last met russell i've uh, had I've been appointed as another adjunct position at eda county university here in perth in western australia as a Brilliant. adjunct associate professor working with two phd students there one on um looking at a fiber fix um, diet and the effect on sleep in uh, patients with uh, IBS. And then we're also doing uh, a PhD sponsored through my business uh, or co-sponsored, if you want to call it, our industry-funded sponsorship through Medias Consulting, where we are looking at the effects of of rostering and and poor sleep on fatigue management in mining industry. So we've just finished the data collection for a randomized controlled trial there. So we have a PhD student, who was awarded that scholarship? Um, so yeah, it's kind of led. Well, me I to think all is, these other pieces of work.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, what as you know, um, I've also you know with my colleagues got a spin out. Um, And so based upon our understanding of how light interacts with the master clock, the SCN, you know, can we develop drugs that will fool the clock that it's seen light and therefore stabilize sleep-wake timing? And that's important if you are profoundly blind, if you have no eyes, for example, or in conditions, um, you know, schizophrenia or bipolar, where the sleep-wake cycle has been completely disrupted. And so, uh, you know, like you, I I love to translate now some of the fundamental science into um, application and, uh, and, and that's been a really exciting um, a recent development. I never thought I would uh, have a spin out or, or really be working in the, in, in, with farmer in the commercial sector. But this is a great way in which you can combine resources and actually deliver change and, yeah, and yeah. benefit for the broader public. And I think that's, that's such a fantastic opportunity.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. Russell, thank you very much for your time today. I know you're extremely busy, so I really do appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast today.
1: Ian, it's been, uh, as always, a a delight to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me on the programme.